I think, by the way, before you start it over, I think you can be explicit because I think at this point the board supremacy is like 10 years old, right? Hello, and welcome to Entertaining the Idea, Season 3, Episode Number 6. This is the podcast where we discuss the creative process from the perspectives of generating and consuming content. I am one half of your uh, I am one half of your podcasting. I am one half of your co-hosting duo, John McStravick, better known as J Mac, and I'm joined by my other co-host, hey, somebody who might Anthony. be able to not stutter over the intro we're, here. <laughs> we're not professionals. We never claim to be professionals, nor do we, nor do we accept payments for this. This is all done as a public service. Hi, <laughs> uh, hey, I'm Anthony Hudex, and I am here. Anthony, the bad great jokes. to talk to you again. Getting back yeah, to man. our public service announcement of a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do it for the public, for the people, for the people. For we the are people. the we are men of the people. We are, we are. I guess so. I don't even know what that means, but um, all right. The Hudster, Hoodster, we're back <laughs> at it again. I'm gonna get it in. I, I'm always gonna get it in now. So yeah. No, like all right, it. Tony. Uh, I'm gonna get right into it this week, and we'll start with our opening question for today. And becoming a kind of you know summer season, the movie theaters are all opening back up. It seems like things are starting to get back into gear, which is exciting. Uh, and a lot of the summer blockbusters are starting to re-enter the uh, the calendar here, which is very exciting. I wanted to know, do you have a favorite time of year for certain types of film releases? And kind of just generally, there's different types of times of year where different types of movies sort of have a kind of hold on the calendar. So example being summer is usually, you know, superhero blockbusters or action movies. Uh, fall might be more thrillers or families or horror movies. December is always those award contenders. Uh, and there's even like more micro times throughout even those calendar moments. Uh, so do you have kind of a specific time of year that you're looking forward to specific types of movies? I, I mean, I, I love the summer blockbuster season. You can't you can't beat that. You can't beat the the feeling of going to a movie in you know at night and then you come out and it's nice and warm and you know I remember seeing you know Independence Day opening day and stuff like that. So there and there's a really soft spot in my heart for the summer movie season. But to not be cliche, I'll say that I have two favorite seasons. One is during uh. Out, out here in Los Angeles, if you're part of any of the unions, um, you get screeners uh, right around November through December. And they're all the movies that are being nominated for all the different awards. And screener season is my all-time favorite movie season. Um, I love them. I love when they come to the house. I get excited every single time to open, even though I know which you know, you, you kind of get a sense of which ones they're going to be after a little bit. And the worst thing is that a lot of the unions are now um, are, are going to online portals so that you okay. just get like a here's, you know, your subscription to HBO Max for the month or here's, your, you know, Netflix subscription for the month or here's your uh, Amazon still sends like gift bag type things like for the marvelous mrs mazel we got a whole like i don't know how to describe it like a travel right. purse thing uh a makeup bag right. a makeup like case 
And then inside there had a bunch of like poker chips and stuff like that for uh, when it was the second season of that. And like Handmaid's Tale always comes in crazy yeah, that's stuff. Yeah, that is always uh, a fun time. I, I remember being at when I was working at a production company and all the executives and stuff, they would all get their screeners, but then they would start handing them out once they got through them. And then there was always like this barter system of like, Oh, did you get this one? Can I get that one? And you always like swap them around and you're lucky. They always get around the whole office by the end of the, uh, end of the run of screener season and award season, which is always great. And yeah, you get to always see these films before they're like fully released, which is a lot of fun. Allegedly, allegedly, because I I hear people do that. That doesn't that isn't something that anybody like. I know you've never done that because then you just you're supposed to watch them once and then break the DVD in half. And we all follow. Oh those yeah, wait, rules but, but aren't, the don't they even like self destruct after you watch them in your DVD player, Mission Impossible style? I think they I think they do. That's that's yes. all the smoke well, uh, but I, I appreciate uh, um, Amazon and Hulu still sort of sending out the full marketing blitz uh, with the whole package where that was part of it. It wasn't usually you just get a DVD. It was kind of like some sort of themed kind of case or something at the minimum with the DVDs or they go the full nine like Amazon and your marvelous Mrs. Maisel gift set. Yeah. And they also send out, which is really nice. They send out the bound screenplays. Which is not like they're just paperback, you know, screenplays, but they're they look nice and everything. I I always enjoy reading different ones, um, and that's how like the any ones that are nominated, I try and read, and anybody that wins, I try and read them as well. Yeah, the good thing about so, that, you can uh, always download those most of the time now around award season. Anybody who's nominated or even looking for uh, consideration, they'll put them up on their website. Amazon usually has full packages with you know, back, uh, you know, interviews and backstage notes. And then they have the scripts in there as well. So that's always a good way to, to read what's going on. Um, I, I personally, I, I agree with you. I enjoy the summer blockbuster season the most, and I have a lot of fond memories of all that, especially like 4th of July and, you know, you're, everybody's going in to see it and it's hard to get a ticket, but then you finally get in there and it's just a lot of fun. I, I specifically though, as I grown older, have, uh, even narrower time frame within the summer summer blockbuster season, and that's in that uh, kind of late summer, that late July, early August time frame, has more recently over the past you know five to ten years been that time where the more adult kind of action thriller, high concept movies might come out or character driven thrillers come out. Sure, uh, I think sure. mostly like Nolan movies come out in this time frame. Maybe the Bourne series always came out in that late July time frame. Um, I remember like a place beyond the pines was like another one, sort of maybe the indie thriller action movies kind of come out. So I always enjoy that the most because they're usually a little bit more, uh, you know, realistic or higher brow kind of stories going on rather than sort of the bubblegum kind of action movies that kind of come out in the Memorial day through July 4th, uh, timescape. So I, I enjoy that. Not that I don't enjoy the fast and the furious coming out at this kind of time or the mission impossibles or any of the Marvel movies, but, uh, just because there's so many of those, you're kind of like, they're always coming out where this is a very specific time frame for these types of movies that are a little bit, uh, you know, different sort of focus. It's not a four quadrant type of movie. Yeah. It starts to be the little bit of a, um, like, I think you put it the right way when it's like the more adult action movies or the more adult thrillers, it's like kind of wetting your 
palette for the award season push that starts in, you know, late September, October, where you start getting all the award season movies. I also want to put in an honorable mention because the late February dump of terrible movies that like they're just trying to get on the calendar for the year that are going to go to like straight to DVD or what used to be straight to DVD or have a very small release. I always liked that time because you would get some of the like stranger movies and some of the bigger swings that a studio was going to do that just didn't pan out. Yeah, I know you get a lot of those thrillers or those murder mysteries in that time frame too, because there is that idea that it could be great. And then they just don't, can't get executed to where the original pitch was. And then they just have to do something with it and at least recoup some sort of little bit from a box office. But yeah, but you can always sometimes find a gem sometimes they dump them there for other reasons. Maybe it's just been on the shelf for so long that they don't think there's anything behind it or they don't feel like spending a lot of marketing money on it, but there's actually still some good movies that come out in that time frame. Yeah, and it's all because everybody's looking for a window. Like, I didn't realize... It's not like the studios coordinate, but when studios set a schedule, other studios are looking at what's happening. So, like, you don't necessarily want to open your small, you know, two-hander thriller against the newest Thor movie because you're just going to get crushed. But, like, there might be an open week right after Valentine's Day that you're like, well, it's it's worth having all the money there to get the, you know, one week top of the box office and maybe get that word of mouth going. So I, I mean I always I you're right. You can get some real gems in there. I wish I had like thought about this a little bit more because I probably could have figured out ones that were really good. But I remember uh Universal was doing a bunch of they were releasing a bunch of good comedies during that time like I think uh, the ride-alongs were coming out in that time they dump them in like right at the end of January right at the end of February into March like not quite extending the summer blockbuster season but just having a little bit more in there yeah because sometimes Um, they do have star power it's not even a matter of lacking big names they just don't think that it, they don't have a place for it anywhere else, like you said. And it's it's funny because even over the past like five to ten years, those calendar slots have been getting extended out as far as them, you know, uh, as far as them kind of actually claiming those different dates. It's happening like further and further out. Marvel is now notorious for this, where they have their yearly kind of convention where they then lay out the schedule for like the next two years of when movies are going to drop, but they won't even actually say what movie is putting in there. They're just saying there will be a Marvel movie on this weekend. They don't even yet know what it is or they may, they're just not telling everybody yet because of their competition, but that then resets everything for all the other studios where they're like, well, I'm not going to go against a Marvel movie with one of my big movies. I'm going to then go find another weekend that is still open. And then it all has a ripple effect. And we talked, I think a little bit about it uh, over the past year with COVID and all of the everything shutting down them rearranging the calendar and how much now 2021 was expected to be packed and it just kept pushing it out and that's why all these went to streaming because there wasn't even a month of like february to dump them anymore because everything was so booked out yeah 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 for sure so 
yeah that so, uh, that is a it's always interesting but uh yeah but i yeah it there, there's always if you actually look at it though there's always different times of the year have usually kind of a uh, coalesced around certain types of movies being released so it's everybody can have, get that time year time of year to find something they like um all right then let's uh move on to what we are watching uh so tony how about you what have you been watching since the last time we spoke so since the last time we spoke, I watched, on your recommendation, the entire run of The Morning Show. Uh, so season one. Uh, so just as the log line. So The Morning Show, it's like a behind the scenes of a Today Show, like morning news program. And it's focusing on the ambitions of all the people who work behind the scenes and what they're willing to do to achieve them and all the ramifications of those decisions and the show starts off with this character Mitch Kessler played by Steve Carell is being taken off the air because of a sexual misconduct situation and then that leaves Jennifer Aniston who plays this character Alex Levy as his co-anchor to run the show by herself and she's in the middle of all this contract negotiation stuff and it's a lot of that behind the scenes type of drama um, so my kind of big takeaway from it is it was really mm-hmm. uneven. Um, there were some really good moments and then there were some really bad moments. Uh, it reminded me very much why Aaron Sorkin is regarded how highly he is because it was, he, he seems to so effortlessly do those heady sort of high stress movies, shows that can put us right into the middle of a world where a lot of things are happening at once and it's very clear, it's very clear people's motivations and there's drama and compelling moments and he does it so well. And there was a couple times in this where there were just some pretty big misses and it seemed to be a lot of times when they were doing the more philosophical speeches um, Reese Witherspoon is also in this as like one of the leads and she plays this character by the name of Bradley Jackson who is this like reporter who is just like always for the truth and fearless and whatever and she has like this monologue that goes viral to kind of start like mm-hmm. in the first episode and it's at this coal oh yeah you know protest and she's yelling at another protester and it's you'd supposed to be this like raw and real moment but it was so philosophically and like like she was just spewing out facts and it was it was really cringy and then the icing on the cake is she she does her report and then the next scene is she's back at the news station and her boss confronts her about it and she has this terrible terrible line which is something to the effect of i was talking to him about the truth remember the truth we're journalism like we're journalists this is what we do and you're just like i can't imagine anybody delivering that line well like there's phenomenally talented actors and actresses in this and oh some of these you know, just monologues were terrible. But then on the flip side, when they did the personal monologues, like Jennifer Aniston has this monologue 
where she confronts Steve Carell about the position he put her in by doing what he was doing. And it's set up so cheesy. Like, she sneaks into his house, and it's, like, raining in the middle of the night, and she, like, kind of breaks in, and, like, he... Like, you think that, like, he's going to accidentally shoot her or something. You know, like, it's set up to be, like, super cheesy. And then she delivers an amazing monologue. And it was very much, like, the ones that were grounded in mm-hmm. feelings were really good. Um, other than that, I just thought the, you know, the other highlight was the supporting cast. Uh, I thought Billy Crudup yeah. uh, <laughs> did a great job as as Corey Ellison, the network the head of entertainment that was moved to the head of news division to shake things up. And he's like, he's so schmarmy and so creepy, but like so good. But with a heart of gold though, with a heart of gold. I don't know that he has a heart of gold, but I, I, he plays that well. Yeah. Well, I mean, he has, he, is he really a good guy or does, does, does being a good guy align with some good things that are happening? You know what I mean? Well, I think that's why he's one of the most interesting characters uh, that be, and he has a lot sort yeah. of to work with or or maybe he imbues that that vibe from him. So that would just speak to how great Billy Curtip is. But uh, it's one of the more interesting characters because there's a lot of sort of layers there where he's one way on the surface and then he kind of has us uh, another layer behind closed doors. And then with each person, he kind of acts the same but then also differently like you know how he kind of handles them but yet he still has that kind of shit-eating grin on his face that he's smarter than you but he's also trying to depending on the situation like butter you up so it's 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 one of those kind of people uh but then later on there's some actual character development with him that you're still not sure by the end if he this is all sort of just a ruse or you know he's that kind of uh aware of himself to get what he wants or if he's actually showing some some uh you know vulnerable human side to himself or some actual ethics to himself so you 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 want to believe in him by the end of it but then you still get a feeling that he's you're not sure and i guess that's again but that's great though because going into season two you're still sort of trying to figure him out which i think is great that that's like a good character arc and a good also performance i think yeah, I think he's great. And one of his character choices that he makes that I think is amazing is, um, like you're saying, that shit-eating grin that he has on his face, that he just pauses, like, and he's just smiling at the person. And they could have said, like, the most awful thing, and he's just smiling. And he has a way of, like, doing that in that you tell he's thinking, and you, he's trying to formulate what's coming next, but he just has this, like, shit-eating grin on his face, like... And it, and it either, really just throws whoever he's talking to for a loop. Like they don't, they don't know how to react to that either. So it really just puts them in this awkward situation. Yeah. He feels, looks like he's completely cool and comfortable in this awkward moment. He's like not feeling awkward himself, but he knows he's putting them in an awkward spot. But yeah, I, I thought it was great. Cause even he has a boss, he gets into kind of a back and forth with, but that was this that he's always in control. So yeah, I, he's Billy Curtis, yeah. one of those actors that, it's like no matter what role he's in, be it a lead role, be it a supporting role, he is just always spot on and nails whatever he's whatever role he has. And he's just one of those actors that you're you're always in great hands, regardless if it's 
even if it's not necessarily written to very strong, like he knows how to find the right notes and the strengths within that, that character that the way it's written to pull out the best of it. So he's kind of like, as he's Stanley Tucci's another one yeah, that he, I find like kind of fits that mold. Yeah, very much so. Um, and then another one that I really liked in there, and I'm going to butcher her name is the Gugu, uh, Gugu yes. Mbatha Ra, who, um, who plays, Hannah Schoenfeld she did such a phenomenal job and she was another one that was able to like have like she had an energy that was going on underneath the surface of every scene she was in and she like she was trying to hold it all together like she always felt like there were a million Mm -hmm. plates spinning even when you didn't see any of the plates yeah. that she had spinning, like she just was able to like, I don't know, deliver that sort of energy. Um, and that was, and I mean, she was great. I mean, she's now in uh, that the new Disney plus series Loki. So I feel her uh, stock is definitely on the rise. For sure. W- watching that, watching the, her in the morning show, put her on my radar. Now I, Whenever I see her or I, I in something, I'm instantly interested in watching it because she was so fantastic in this, and is just one of those actors now that I anything she's going to do, I'm just at least want to check out and see if it might be interesting to me because I think that, like you said, she's on the rise, and then maybe she's making some great choices and interesting roles. Uh, the two other quick ones I wanted to mention were uh, Karen Pittman, who plays Mia Jordan, who's like Bradley Jackson's producer and you don't quite understand why she's so eager to jump on the Bradley Jackson fan club train until you get her whole backstory, which I thought was great. Um, And then Mr. Carbonell, who plays Bianco Flores, who we always refer to in this house as eyelashes, because he always looks like he's wearing eyeliner yes. and we first like picked him up from lost. Um, oh, it's funny. I, I remember him the most he, as the mayor in uh, the dark Knight. Yeah. 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 He's the mayor. And that's what I remember him from, but he's really good. He's uh he plays such a, a fun character. If that can be said, the piece really goes into, a lot about the the workplace dynamics and power dynamics and a lot of it is framed around sexual assault and sexual misconduct and everything like that and i thought that was um, the one of the more interesting storylines they had in that show as far as like a c storyline right. him and the, the His, girl like and she was fantastic too i i loved yeah. her the 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 girl that he's seeing right 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 yeah they're, they cover a lot of those topics, like you said, and they in, in different various storylines. And I thought that was one of the more succinct ones that actually got to the heart of what they're trying to convey as far as a theme goes as in, in, in that storyline. Like I thought they did the best with that one and all like the trappings and the issues with what they're dealing with within that specific storyline, I thought was the best way to they, they actually got to the heart of that uh, issue that they're trying to go over. Yeah, it was a good counterweight to some of the other stuff that was going on because it's so, some of the other stuff gets so heavy and a little heavy handed that they, 
the relationship that was going on between Yanko and um, I, I yeah I, I like don't want to say too much but it was a good like almost levity to it because it's the hey yeah. remember these are people and people are sometimes going to be attracted to each other sometimes power dynamics look a different way on paper than they do in real life and uh it was just that was just an interesting counterweight and not a like i don't know it it could have easily been a heavy-handed defense of stuff and it wasn't it was just almost like a comic relief in a lot of times right but that was so interesting about it It was like a lighter story yet also still dealing with certain serious dynamics like within the workplace. But I think that goes to your point earlier where you said it was a show that was a bit on balance, but this is the part that almost helped balance it out a bit more. Whereas these smaller storylines, these, these secondary characters where lots of the main, uh, a story gets very melodramatic and gets very, they take themselves almost too seriously about it where they, they try to force what they want you to feel or the, the theme that they're trying to hammer home where this was an example of them having the right touch, like a lighter touch and a more down to earth touch to a same thing, like a a serious topic, but they, they found a better way to kind of infuse it and actually make it interesting to follow and watch. So I, I think that goes to Mm -hmm. your point and I agree that it, there's parts of the show that are really, really good. And then there's other parts of the show that are a bit frustrating and unbalanced. And and I think it's because they go into this melodrama and force it too much on certain points. Well, once things became a little bit more clear and everybody's motivations became a little more out there, you, it definitely seemed the story seemed to find its footing and was really propelling itself. Um, but in the in the beginning, there's a lot of time spent, essentially, I don't know a better way to put it, there's a lot of time spent monologuing, and it's like, or scenes that are very, like, very much to just make a point about where the show feels. Well, it's it's funny you bring up Sorkin earlier, and I, I feel like he has those moments too, but he still has a flair for the dramatic that even when you he, he's a little bit more grating because he's kind of a little bit on the nose, he also comes from theater, so I think his theatrical roots kind of break through a lot of his his film and televisions but uh, stories, but they still have that extra dramatic flair of the the quick talk the banter the the dynamics of whatever's going on in the scene yeah they always make it feel very kinetic where this kind of just focuses on the one monologue and what they're trying to get across and i again i think that's where it, it kind of gets into the melodrama rather than than being interesting of kind of what's actually happening in the scene yeah and i think one of the you know one of the things about Sorkin is Sorkin has such a beat. Mm-hmm. Like, he's almost like Mamet, where he has like a beat that you can like almost like there's a rhythm to the way things are speaking or like a Kevin Smith, yeah. like there's a rhythm to it. And like, it's almost like listening to in a different way, like a stand-up comedian where there's like the the rhythm starts going and then you're like, you're in it because you're you're listening to the song. But the thing that I think makes Sorkin 
better than somebody like a mammoth who I think is a little is much more on the nose than Sorkin is. Yeah. Is that Sorkin's funny. So he'll have those moments that are way dramatic or way over the top or something like that and then he'll undercut it with something funny or having to deal with something tiny. You know, I mean, I don't know why this is the example that popped into my head. You know, in A Few Good Men, where you have Tom Cruise in the, like, in the middle of all this, gets mad about the fact that he can't find his baseball bat that he thinks with. And the way that they get set up, it isn't like it's, ah, ha, 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 like, hilarity ensues. But it's like he's in the middle of trying to figure something out and then he just stops and like starts looking for his bat. And it's it like it like dissolves the tension. It kind of lightens it and like Demi Moore's all thrown off and she's like kind of looking around and you know whatever. But that to me is like the brilliance of someone like an Aaron Sorkin where like you can undercut something just a little bit. Yeah, well, he does that too. He, he'll or he'll have kind of non sequiturs happening or like secondary conversations happening yeah. at the same time that the main conversation's happening, and and so your attention's divided. But and that's kind of the point, though. You feel again this this crazy energy, but the secondary conversations usually, like you said, more pedantic that's going on in the same time that they're having this more serious discussion but this the main person's kind of split focus so the other person feels frustrated because they're trying to get their point across and this he's talking to them and then they're also he's or this character is having a discussion to this other person about like you said maybe about a sam what sandwiches are they ordering for the office today or something like that or he doesn't and he doesn't like that place so he does those kind of things yeah and i, I don't know it, it's good it lines it up i mean he's got a style and you know obviously obviously it works for him <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and but even with the morning show, you know, this stuff's hard and, you know, you, you come on and you're making a shift in tone and, and scope of how you're going to kind of the, the story you're presenting is, is also a difficult thing to do midstream. So none of this stuff is easy. And it's like even when you look at it and you, you find some flaws, it doesn't mean that they weren't trying. I just don't think they might have executed as clearly and succinctly as maybe they were intending to. But that's why, you know, they got a season two, so maybe they'll be able to yeah. iron out some of those uh, those wrinkles a bit and, and and get a bit stronger, so. Yeah, and there's, listen, everybody's got a schedule. Like, you could, if you had a year to do everything or you had two years to put out a, a product, it would be completely different than working on a television schedule. A television yeah. schedule is tighter. Like, you have to get a season out, and that's written in produced and everybody's input and people all the way up the food chain get to give notes on stuff and it's yeah especially a show like this i think this is one of their marquee shows to launch a whole streaming service so there's a lot of pressure on it too and it, so there's a lot of probably cooks in the kitchen on that kind of uh endeavor and so i'm sure that there's some of that going on there too so yeah so it's it's hard it's it's not an easy thing to do but that but again you just have to point out, you know, when people do it well, you have to be like, this is a, a good comparison to like looking at a, a different type of show. Like this very much felt like this. I don't know if you ever watched Sports Night. Like it was it was very much like that, where it was like not the best Aaron Sorkin show, but like you could tell there was a, 
he was getting better at what he was doing because um, it was it was really uneven at times. I didn't see Sports Night, but I have I did watch all of the newsroom, and I feel sort of the same way. Where there's a lot of parts where he's super strong, but he still then it does some of his Sorkin things that it can be frustrating at times. But there, it's it's definitely. But like I think it's a lot of people compare the newsroom to Sports Night, but again, it, it's the next step up. Like it is stronger in different ways but yeah i had oh i had forgotten about newsroom that's what i think of honestly it's the craziest thing is that that's what i think of now when i think sorkin i think newsroom yeah you gotta watch some watch the like run of the west wing well we can get into sort of a whole discussion on him (laughs) because uh one of my favorite movies is social network and i have thoughts on that too so anyway all right so let's move on so what i've been watching i wanted to actually do two things a quick one was just some follow-up on what you watched the last time we spoke and i finally got around to watching it was uh mayor of east town hey look at that we were doing each other's recommendations it's recommendation week here on entertaining the idea who who would have thought that our co-host would be recommending things and then they would go out and watch them we're actually like a a, a actual duo here man (laughs) look if nobody else is watching what we're recommending we're at least watching each other's recommendations so we're we're not we're not just you know spit in the wind i know we're doubling it's true it's true all right so uh watch mayor of east town i liked it uh it was good it was one of those shows that's good it's not great it wasn't you know same thing kind of it has some really great moments and overall was a solid production and yes. they did a good job but it has its flaws that for different reasons uh I, I think one of the harder things for me being so close to like not the source material but just the 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 location and the setting of the story because it's from Delaware County which is where I'm from but then has a bunch of smaller towns within it it the whole crux of this setting to me didn't quite fit and I don't like to usually get on too much about being all super authentic to certain settings necessarily like you know you're set in a city it's you don't have to always do all the trappings of what makes uh, a local city, all of its, you know, ins and outs and, and quirks and stuff. But this one just seemed way off from what I grew up experiencing of like what my area was like. And, and it just, the, they didn't seem to shoot the locations in places that actually look like where anywhere I'm from or the, any of the neighboring towns. And, yeah. Oh, really? And, and the idea of this small town doesn't really fit in with the setting of where I, I grew up uh, because we're just a bunch of municipalities and townships okay. that are all densely packed in. It's it's the d- most dense suburb of, of Philadelphia. And it's not this spread oh, out okay. thing. Now, everybody kind of knowing everybody is, is, is kind of a truism there. It is one of those kind of areas that everybody knows somebody, everybody has a cousin who does this or that. So that, that part of it is somewhat, you know, true to life, but other parts of it, and it's all minor stuff, nothing that nobody else would actually understand unless you're from there. The, the annoying thing too, is they kept dropping in names of different places like, Oh, this hospital or that park or that store or this restaurant or, you know, that, that part, you know, this, this place, that place. And this sort of talk like that, but you also don't like, again, because they're pulling in all these things from Delaware County and it, 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 I don't know. It just, it was, it's a lot of nuanced stuff that took me out, but I also was able to stay in it enough to, to enjoy the story. But, you know, I, it would, the question was, here is what I was, I was talking to my wife about it. 
I don't understand why okay. you go do the extreme of being authentic to the dialect, which they were, and which I appreciate, which is great, you know, especially yeah. because usually anything in the Philadelphia region, usually like we talked before, gets a uh, just kind of a poor man's Brooklyn accent. So I appreciate that. And, and they, they did, yeah, I think, a much. relatively good job overall. Like I, I have nothing to nitpick about them and they're doing the dialects. But why go to that length, which is not easy to do, yet then everything else about the setting in the world doesn't quite you know, match up. Like I felt like this whole town would have been, this setting would have been felt better if it was in somewhere like Bethlehem or Allentown or something like that. Like that's what it felt like. I honestly thought they shot this maybe in Pittsburgh, like even in setting like some sort of Pittsburgh or a suburb of Pittsburgh or something. They, they shot it in uh, primarily, I believe it was shot in Phoenixville. Um, at least that's what okay. I believe the exteriors were. And I only recognized some of it because I was, once traveling to a Beck concert and our car broke down in Phoenix. Too. Yeah. So anyway, I, yeah. And it's, it's far west. I'm, I'm further West than I yes. grew up further West than you did. And Phoenixville is probably about another two oh, hours really? West of me oh, wow. where I grew up. Yeah. So I think you're right. Like the, the way the town read to me was like the, uh, the coal region, uh-huh. Pennsylvania is kind of shaped like your hand. So it would be your left hand. And then where Philadelphia is, is where your pinky is. And like where we're talking about is like where your pointer and middle finger are, is where that's more the look yeah, of the Yeah, and that, that's exactly right. That's what it, it, it had weird, yeah, just calculations of how they were kind of representing all the people. And Delaware County isn't huge by comparative counties, but it has a very diverse mix of class in a class structure within Delaware County where there are some, you know, poor districts and then there's other areas that are very wealthy and and then there's everything in between. And most of it's the in-between, just like solid middle class to upper middle class kind of feel to it. But I didn't quite get all that. And it was kind of weird. Like I said, I was like trying to find this pinpoint of like, what was this East town supposed to represent? And I couldn't quite put my thumb on it. And it, and it was weird. And that's just, that was all part of these little nuances. Again, anybody else watching it who isn't from that area has no idea. If I was watching this and they set this somewhere in Ohio, I would just be like, okay, yeah, it was a good story and I enjoyed it and I wouldn't be nitpicking. So this is me just having the sh- the shared true experience of what yeah. this setting was and that took me out of it a little bit. But again, I also watched enough stuff of getting taken out of it that I can also put myself back in it and kind of push that off to the side and uh, enjoy it for what it was. And, and I did. It was a good, yeah. you know, I guess murder mystery kind of story. Like there's not much to it. It wasn't anything groundbreaking. Um, it was basically, I, it's basically this small town detective kind of takes on this murdered teen, this case of a murder teen while dealing with her own struggles at home and within the community. And that's basically the sum of the show. And then it's just what all of her struggles are and the personal drama that kind of ensues from that quick spoiler alert here. And I have a question for you. What was your take on all of this interconnectedness to the actual main story of what? What do you mean? 
the the actual case it's murder case itself all of her personal connections ended up yes. tying into this case which i was i'm just curious what your take is on that i have thoughts my i mean my take on stuff like that is i I never mind that. I actually think that tends to be fairly interesting about... I think that's why it's so cliche to set a murder in a small town because it's more likely that the detective or whoever's investigating the case becomes to have a bigger vested interest than just, you know, being out for justice. Like, their their vested interest becomes part of the community that they're... um, you know, investigating. Interesting example of that, there's a book by Jonathan Latham that I had read not too long ago called The Feral Detective, and it takes place around Mount Baldy. And, like, this woman comes from New York to search for her friend, but, like, obviously throughout the book, the guy who, the feral detective, starts investigating people that he grew up with. And I think that is a trope of mysteries that I just kind of accept as part of the deal of going into it. So that didn't bother me too much. Some The stuff that bothered me more were the, like, obviously play for the camera misdirects. Where oh, that I was the other thing. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. I, I don't like those. I don't like something that if you, like, took a second to think about it, you'd be like, you just said that for the camera, and the camera's not supposed to be there. We shouldn't have caught that out of context, because there's no context that that would have even made sense. But anyway, to go back, to, the interconnectedness never bothered me, because, I, like, I, it'd be like, to me, I think it's just like, there's when you're in an action movie, they're they're going to have unlimited amount of bullets. Like... Unless you're Archer, which does a really great job of, ca- of counting bullets. And, <laughs> and just the fact that... I, lo- I love the plug there. Oh, man, that's, that, that's, a great, uh, that's a great callback there. I love that. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so what, um, was, what was your problem with the interconnectedness? Or just- I just felt like that... Maybe that's part of it. It just felt like too easy and too cliched. And that just added... like It made it just more melodrama rather than it's staying kind of keeping these two things separate and maybe having them kind of parallel to each other. And I can say that. However, the case is going kind of is reflecting or is maybe encounter to what's going on in her personal life than all the struggles she's dealing with, or obviously it is affecting her into the case, but it got real close to home though, the way that it went. And I honestly wasn't that satisfied with the final conclusion. I don't I think either. that I don't think that her I felt that then they tried to almost tie it up too neatly with a bow and give her some resolution where I don't think she deserved any or at least the resolution that they gave her. I don't think that she deserved it and I was a little frustrated by that. So that's where I that's why part of it it was like they the first twist when it really brought her close to home was like, Oh no, are we really going? Is this what this is going to be? Cause this is about the third or fourth episode in when this happened. Yep. I know exactly and I was a little frustrated by that. And, and then it sort of, it then it pushed away a little bit and then it came back and then it pushed away and then it comes back. And yeah. And off of that, what you just mentioned also is the misdirects were very frustrating and you kind of could see them happening if you've watched enough of this. And the first red flag is, 
why are we leaving her POV? Like the instant you leave her POV and like you said, you hang around or you go to some secondary characters, uh, story when there's no real motivation to it that you're like, why am I doing this now? Like why in this very specific scene, all of a sudden I'm getting to see this thing happening. Like, why don't we just stay to mayor's POV and just keep working it out? Like, why do I, the audience getting insight into something that mayor doesn't have any idea to? Cause then the next mm-hmm. episode, it's like, okay, I saw this thing and I know this thing about this character, but mayor doesn't know it yet. So why did they do that? Like, what am, are you just doing this on purpose to make me feel like to think something like, obviously like that is what they're doing. And I, I just don't like that. I, I feel like you're messing with the audience unfairly that way. When you play a, a misdirect just for the camera, it's one of the things that annoys me the most about I, when we had talked about heist movies and con movies yeah. and how much I love them. One of the things that I cannot stand is when there's a scene that's happening, that's only done for the camera. Like, there's no reason for these characters to have this discussion at this time, at this place, other than to make me feel like something else is happening. And those drive me up the wall. And when, and you could feel it happening. Um, And this is kind of silly because it is like a savvy movie. Like, not savvy, it's just the fact that, you know, we've been watching TV our entire lives. When you realize that there's, you know, two episodes left and you have something that sounds so much like the thing is getting wrapped up that you're like, yeah, it can't be wrapped up. There's at least two more hours of this story. Like this has to be wrong. I also agree with you. The bow that they gave her at the end, I did not think it was deserved. I would have rathered the last scene with Mare uh, be the one with her and her friend in the car where yep. Yep. she like flips out. Yep. That would have been to me the place to end that story and to just let it hang right there. 1000%. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was that, and I was like, okay, that works. But then when they kept going on, it was like, this is no, 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 no. Yeah. And because then that there should be fallout, <laughs> there should be fallout because I had this whole discussion with Emily where I was like, I don't agree with the decision that happened here. Like with what she decided to do, you know, with the case and all, and as a human perspective and then, and it's like, okay, that's fine. I don't agree with that, but that's, this is that character and this is the choice that she's making. That's yeah. fine. But then there should be collateral damage from that choice. I a hundred percent agree. All right. Well, yeah. So those were some of the nuanced things. The, the, those were the actual story parts of it outside of, like I said, I, I, you know, close to home as far as the setting life, but outside of that, those are the two things that bug me. I'm glad you brought up the other thing. Cause that was also on my list. And yeah, the, these, these, uh, you know, red herrings that they, they kind of send out and they did a couple of them, which is frustrating. They kept doing it and you're like, uh, overall still a decent story. The, the personal stuff is really good. Like it's, you know, and, and she was fantastic. Kate Winslet was fantastic. Yeah. And, and so was a lot of the supporting cast. So the, the struggle, the shared struggles of everybody throughout the community, which was kind of the, the, to me, one of the big things that everybody's sharing has a struggle. 
uh, I thought was one of the strongest parts of it all. Like the, so the overlying theme of that, all that to me was, was really, really great. And I, I really enjoy stories about that because I, I, I think everybody does have those, those, uh, everybody has something about all their fighting. And when you can show it like that, I, I enjoy those. I, I agree with you. I thought it did a, a lot of really, really good things. Um, it just, you know, sometimes we, if, if you're writing a thriller or a murder mystery or something like that, take note of those certain flaws and try to work out. Don't, don't box yourself into using them. All right. So moving on the other movie I watched, and this leads up into our main event later on. Uh, I watched the born supremacy as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, cause we are later on going to talk about some, some fast action, uh, automobiles. So I decided to hop in and just watch one of my favorites, uh, just kind of team that up here and, this is the middle one of the Born trilogy. I guess it's really a quadrilogy now because they did Jason Bourne as a fourth a few years ago where they came back to it. But Born Supremacy was the middle of the original three. It's, to me, the best one of them all. Uh, what so, happens in Supremacy? So the Born Supremacy is the middle of the original trilogy of the Born series. So just a bit of spoiler warnings. If you are, haven't already watched any of the Bournes, I mean, they've been out for over 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, something like that. Jason Bourne is this super spy from the CIA. They have this program where they broke down these uh, elite fighters and then retrained them as super spies. Jason Bourne had amnesia, didn't know what his background was, was trying to figure it all out in the first movie, figured out that he was this super spy. And he then told them, I'm out of here. Don't bother me. You won't hear from me. So he goes off the grid. Second movie starts. He's off the grid in India somewhere with his girlfriend. He gets set up framed for uh, this murder of this other uh, op that went down by the CIA. And then they also murder his girlfriend. So then he comes out thinking the CIA murdered his girlfriend and he wants to exact revenge and find out like, why are they coming after me? Oh, that's right. It's not actually the CIA. Yeah. It's this Russian oligarch who is trying to frame Jason Bourne and then they try to kill him and they didn't. They killed his girlfriend. So anyway, That's he rough, comes out man. of hiding never and, and chase never date a spy, man. So anyway, he comes out of hiding and he's kind of like, you know, on a rampage and long story short, they all start to sort out what happened, what's going on. There's a lot of, uh, double crossing in the CIA and all this bad, you know, backstabbing and stuff like that. And, and, uh, side deals that are going on with the, some Russian oligarchs. Anyway, at the end of the story, at the end of the movie, to me is one of the most iconic car chases of all time. <laughs> yeah. And that is why I rewatched this movie because it to me is one of the best car chases of all time. And the whole movie now, I, I want to just step back a little bit. Uh, Matt Damon is Jason Bourne. If you don't already know, this first movie was directed by Doug Lyman. Uh, and it was great. It was, is kind of a sleeper hit. It was kind of one of those movies that gained a cult following. So they made the second one whole series based on Robert Ludlum's uh, Born series. Mm -hmm. It's a book series. Anyway, um, Paul Greengrass came on to direct this one and the subsequent other ones with Matt Damon. And he really just brought a whole lively energy to it that stepped up the whole series. And outside even just this car chase, the, the entire dynamic of how they shot this whole movie pretty much set the blueprint for how action movies are going to be filmed for the next decade plus i mean you could really still have a lot of roots of what action movies are like now yeah especially fight sequences going oh, back to the born yeah. supremacy 
So it, the there's multiple fight sequences as there is in all the Bourne movies, but the one that sticks out to me the most was the one where he fought the other uh, last agent that there was. It was just him and this other agent were the only ones left from this whole program. And he went there, Jason Bourne, to find out why Treadstone, why the CIA, CIA was chasing after him. And a big fight ensues between them, and it was just so so kinetic. And I've been using that word a lot today, but it's just all over the place. It's these fast cuts. It's these, uh, cam shots, handheld shots all over the place. Sometimes you can't even orient yourself, but it's fast paced there. The, the action they're fighting is because these are two notch super spies and it's just so great. And it really is the blueprint for everything else that comes after it. And it's just great. Yeah. The, that whole, like getting into the middle of the fight it's crazy to think that that wasn't always the way that they shot fight sequences. I remember people being kind of annoyed with it. Like, they couldn't really see what was going on. But it had that sort of, like, uh, found footage aesthetic mm-hmm. in a way because you're not always seeing everything framed up. But it had the energy to what was happening because you were in for, like, what was, like, some weird stuff or, like, some weird quick stuff. And then it would be like step like way back to see somebody like hit a wall or like go through glass or whatever. And well, yeah. And and in that, and that's completely right. What you're talking about, because there would be this lot of like in the weeds of the fight, but then there is a moment where one of them gets the upper hand or pushes them back. And then it's a pause for a brief like second or two. And then, then they grab something else around them and use what's in their environment as well. And then, in addition to the sound effects that they'll use. So an example would be Matt Damon gets thrown off the guy. He sees a pile of magazines. He grabs a magazine, rolls it up. The other guy has a knife and then he's there. The one guy has a knife trying to stab him. He's batting him away with this. All it is is a rolled up magazine, but then they have this very distinct sound effects each time they each kind of hit each other and it's so fast. And then they, same thing. One of them gets pushed away. The other one then grabs like a cord from an iron and then tries to start strangling the other one. So there's this quick fight, pause, grab something, then gets right back into it in this new dynamic. And it's really just great. I, I think to me, what I love about it is it elevates the characters and how good they are, what they do. And when then you have two top notch guys going head to head, it just, makes it so energetic and fun to watch and really elevates like the, 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 the conflict that's going on in the scene. Oh, hundred percent. I would agree a hundred percent. Anyway, um, we don't get too much more into it. I, the main reason I just wanted to bring it up is because it's one of my favorite movies of all time and all of it tight, very efficient. The story, I think they just do so wonderfully as far as a spy thriller goes, you know, misdirection in the right way where a lot of people don't know what's going on. Everybody's kind of in the dark. So everybody, there's like three or four different sides trying to figure out what's going on. What does the other person want? And different sides are kind of on the same side, but then they're not, then the other sides are on the same side. So there's all this, like I said, kind of double crossing here or double intrigue going on. And even you as the audience kind of have an idea of like what's not true, but you also don't know everything that is totally true. So you're still kind of in the whole, uh, in the middle of the story, trying to figure it out as well. And to pull all that together with the pacing and the action is to me just a, a real work of art. And 
having Paul Greengrass do this and then him become known for this and him really have that touch is just great. And I, I just love that style. And it's made it one of my, it's part of the reason why I love spy movies so much. And this is my favorite spy movie of all time. And it's my, one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. I think one of the greatest things that I loved about the Bourne series was the fact that, um, you essentially have your main character as an unreliable narrator because he's still trying to remember what he was supposed to be doing. So even with the best of intentions the cia could have legitimately had a reason to want him dead he could have legitimately done something so terrible that they needed to take him off the board and that tension that kind of keeps riding through it as you dig down deeper and deeper throughout the stories is what i always liked so much about the movies was that you, I mean, the first one, it, it looms the largest because he's trying to put it all together and you're with him in the right. confusion. He gets a little bit more sense throughout each of the movies of what what is true and what's not. But that was always my favorite part is really being like everybody's trying to guess somebody else's motivation. And then you don't even know if the person at the heart of your story, while they're a good person, if they're actually like they, they could be the bad guy. Well, I and I think you're you're 100 right there with that unreliable narrator where you don't know. And the best part is then he gets, he kind of feels like, that's the whole crux though of the story with the amnesia part and him trying to piece it together is that he regains the sense of his moral compass a bit where he knows what all this is doesn't feel like the true self, but it's only thing that he knows. And he goes to instinct whenever he's backed into a corner. But then he keeps growing, and as you get to the climax, he he has then the choice of using those skills to you know finish the job or end a life or you know even get himself free and clear as far as people hunting him. But then he, he his moral compass then comes true, and he's kind of gets back to where he is, what his true self is, and. But then with the second movie, it's it's kind of all they they find a very good way of kind of blurring that again. And it's very just smartly done. And, yeah. and then even the third one is really good. Uh, but I, I just think they peaked with the second one, which happens with these trilogies a bit. Uh, when, you, when you go back to the aughts, they, they, it's because I think they do a lot of setup in the first one. And then that second one is kind of them unleashed and without the kind of baggage of having to explain a lot. And then the third one's trying to do also the wrap up. So usually the third one has some more baggage. They have to kind of do the tying it off. So. Oh yeah. It's hard to land a plane. It is. It's hard to land a plane. Sticking with the theme here a bit, we have our uh, main event coming up soon. But before we get into that, I wanted to do a little uh, a little appetizer to it. And <laughs> so, so, so the main event is going to be car chases. We'll just yeah. lay that out here. So, you know, Tony and I were having you know some discussions about this uh, a little bit of back and forth uh, throughout the week talking about it, and he kind of got into the fast and the furious, which we'll talk about. So he did a little bit of rewatching and then he starts texting me about this whole theory, uh, about the, the fast saga, uh, after I think uh, number four. So I, I won't really get much more into it. I'm just going to let Tony kind of take it away here about what was, what were you thinking when you started texting me? Like, what are you doing here? And what were you piecing together? And 
how did this all sort of come about? And and also then tell me what the theory is. <laughs> okay, so I had uh, been out of town and I had come home and we were getting the house back together and we were cleaning and doing whatever. So I had a lot of time to fold laundry and I just decided to start watching The Fast and Furious in the chronological order. So that goes, um, Tokyo Drift does not become the number three movie. It actually goes after number six. Doesn't matter. Point being is, as I'm watching... Uh, Fast, Too Fast, Too Furious, and then, you know, the third one, and then into the fourth one. The end of the fourth one, um, there's going to be a bunch of spoilers in here. There's no way to get around it. Essentially what happens is at the end of the fourth one, the storyline from the first to the fourth is wrapped up. Brian, um, played by... um, Paul Walker. Paul Walker. Thank you. Uh, Brian, played by Paul Walker, was sent into Dom Toretto's crew, uh, played by uh, Vin Diesel, to arrest him and take down the crew. And by the end of the fourth movie, uh, while Dom and Brian have become friends, Dom is, have been sent to prison for 25 years. And uh, Brian thinks this is a grave miscarriage of justice. And he walks out of uh, Dom's sentencing hearing. And he's there with Dom's sister, who is his ultimate love, Mia. And then the end of the fourth movie is the you see Dom's prison transport that is taking him to Wampak Penitentiary to serve 25 years to life without the possibility of parole. Or 25 years without the possibility of parole. And then you see... Brian driving Dom's charger and then Mia's in her car and there's a couple other people that are going and the the idea is they're going to bust him out. Okay, so that's the end of the, the fourth movie. Right. So this is my theory. When Fast Five starts, you see the end of that rescue attempt. And okay. I believe that the rescue attempt ended up in Brian and Dom dying and fast five through the rest of the series is just Mia's fantasy about what would have happened had they survived and had they been able to have a perfect life together. And this is why I say that because in the beginning of fast five, they surround the bus This is a full prison transport of, you know, like 40 prisoners on a school bus type thing. And Brian's driving a Dodge Charger. Everybody's like zipping around and they get the bus going back and forth. And then Brian stops the Dodge Charger in the middle of the road. And the bus is sweeping back around and hits the back of the Dodge Charger and flips over it. The Charger doesn't move. So this is a bus going at full highway speed, hitting the back of a Dodge Charger. The bus flips over the Charger as if it's, like, cemented into the ground, and then, like, shatters. Like, this thing, there is, like, stuffing that's going flying everywhere. There's, like, debris. Like, everybody who was inside that bus died. And what would have probably happened in real life is it would have come right down on top of that charger and crushed Brian, which is, I think, what would have, what happened in real life. And I think what, what happens then in the movie is we hard cut 
to news footage. The news footage says everybody survived, there was no fatalities, and the only one missing are Dom Toretto and his accomplices, Brian and Mia. And then for the first time, the series goes outside of the United States. And all of a sudden, we're, or not really, we go into, we go further than we have outside of the U.S. since being in like the Dominican Republic. And all of a sudden, we're in Rio de Janeiro. And the whole series just changes. All of a sudden, Brian and Dom have access to tech like nobody believes. They, they're they putting a crew together. There's no more new-ish characters coming in. It's all characters that we've seen before in different Fast movies. They all get back together. And the most important thing, which is, I think brings us to me as fantasy, is that the first person they go to see in Rio de Janeiro is the guy that used to have a crush on her, Vince. So they go down to Rio de Janeiro... They hang out with Vince. They pull a job. It goes sideways, as they do in the Fast movies. And uh, Vince betrays them. And I think that was me rationalizing that Vince was never a good guy. and was never the one. It was putting to bed in her psyche that chance that maybe she made the wrong choice by choosing Brian, who literally destroyed her Los Angeles family. So Vince betrays them again and there's a scene as they're they have escaped this you know the rock who's now down in Rio de Janeiro hunting them they escape him through these sewer tunnels and they come out and Dom and Brian are like we need to split up Dom's like I'll head north and lead him away from you you guys keep heading south into Argentina and Mia stops and she says no I've already lost my family once. I need us all to stay together. And even though it isn't the smart play, they all do. And it all is focused on Mia because Brian loves, has fallen in love with Mia and Dom will always love his sister. So they all kind of embrace together. And from there, throughout the rest of the fourth or the fifth movie, Mia is like a co-leader with the with Brian and Dom and they you know put together this crazy heist and everything and all the physics of the world are just gone and I think the whole fantasy goes along until Mia and Brian retire by the beach with their kid and he gives up his life of crime while Dom goes on to just continue to be a superhero and get crazier and crazier and crazier stuff done, including like converting agents to his side and everything like this. So anyway, that was my fan theory and I was realizing it as I watched this. And I was like, I think this whole thing is Mia's fantasy. I think they all died right at the beginning of Fast Five. So there it is, there is my fan theory. All right. Well, that is fantastic. And you did a wonderful job explaining the headcanon that you have created out of your rewatch, I'm sure, of probably like the thousandth time of the Fast Saga. Oh, they're so uh, good. That is, so, so how many did you get through when you started watching since the first one? Did you get through all eight? 
Uh, no, I oh, um, I was Where, in. Where'd you get up I was to? in seven when uh, oh, I got wow. into. Oh wow! Used that still? No, I got you... pretty far. Oh, and that was the other thing. In four, the guy who shoots Letty, Michelle Rodriguez's character, literally tells Dom, "Yeah, I wrecked her car, and then I shot her." But then Letty comes back in the in another. Like, movie, I think she comes back in six. They kind of blur together as I watch them all in a row. But she comes back in six and has a story about how she escaped death. And I was like, this is all made up. This is all Mia just making herself feel better because at the end of the day, it was her fault. Like, I know that it isn't actually her fault, but if you were Mia, you were the one that had the crush on Brian at Toretto's grocery store. You're the one that brought him into the group. He like you were flirting with him, you fell in love with him and he admitted to you first that he was the FBI agent. So I think Mia had so much guilt that she just made up the rest of the movies and we're just kind of living in Mia's psyche for the rest of the time. There we go. End rant. That tracks for me. That that makes sense. Uh, I mean, they went from just regular L.A. street racers into some of the best superheroes around. Dude, they're, they're they're battling tanks. They're they're dropping out of airplanes in their cars. They're they're getting chased by submarines in the Arctic. <laughs> in number five, they literally order a safe and it gets delivered to their hideout in Rio de Janeiro. Like this high tech safe that they had to break. They're like, like boom, it's just there. Like they're they're all tech all of a sudden. Brian has like a card scanner. Yeah, that's a pretty quick ex- escalation too. It's not like, oh, like each movie they keep, they found like some sort of, you know, connect or something like that. And like Mr. Nice, was it Mr. Nice Guy? He hasn't come around till Mr. Uh, Nobody. later on. Yeah. Mr. Nobody, that's what it yeah. is. So, all right. Well, I... Sounds good to me, man. I, I'm now going to go into watching all the fast movies thinking, or at least from five on, that it's Mia's, it's Mia's wonder dream. Yeah, yeah. So good. So watch it that way. And then uh, they all make sense. All right. Well, uh, I, I would love to know anybody else's, uh, if anybody out there has some uh, fan theories or headcanon about the fast series that either matches or has a different explanation, please let us know. Uh, so we have our, this is our four funsies uh, section here. And uh, let Tony explain this theory. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. All right. Uh, very good. So I hope that was all a, a fun appetizer for our main event. And leading into that, we are, as I said earlier, going to be talking about car chases and what is so fantastic about car chases in movies. So, uh, Tony, let's just kind of uh, lead it off with that question. What do you love specifically about car chases in movies? My favorite thing about car chases is it generally the energy and the creativity of what you can do with an automobile is a lot of fun. One of my favorites of all time is in uh, Fast Five, and it's they they've strapped a safe to the back of two cars via a chain and then they're trying to swing it around the streets of Rio de Janeiro and there's just something so you know two fingers on a matchbox car ripping it around a corner and making that noise that 
is just uh, it brings me back there watching car chases and I I mean they're just so much fun that way so that's my favorite part of them yeah I I enjoy the the crazy energy that is in a car chase because this is something that really doesn't happen the way they happen in movies and mm-hmm. that's what's exciting about it and I think that's it's so unique to film and it's a cinematic experience which I think is the underlying foundational why they're so fun to watch and everybody loves a good car chase and as they keep happening throughout like film history like they each have to ratchet up something that you haven't seen before or do something new or or interesting or reinvent a way that you see it because there is a shared history of seeing other car chases so you're always trying to top the last big thing that there was and the heights that they go to do that are astounding and it keeps happening. And I mean, it either be within a franchise or a certain kind of genre, they keep finding ways to make each one interesting. And that's what I think I also love about it is that there's a good chance you're always going to get something new out of it or something crazy. Sometimes it's just so off the wall that you're just, you do think like what is happening, but then it gets to the point. They're just so much fun that you don't care. Like it's that suspension of disbelief that you're like, yes, please just, just, defy physics in all matters of the word and just do whatever you want because I want to see that. And it's, it, that's just then imbues fun in everything. And that's usually the biggest thing about a car chase is they're just fun because they do things that are not normal in life. And that's some of the best things that you can do in a movie is things that aren't true to life, but have elements of truism, uh, you know, that's relatable in life. Yeah. One of the things that is so true about what you said is, I don't know if you remember or if you were out in L.A. when they decidedly stopped breaking into the new or breaking into daily programming to show a car chase. Like, I feel like that happened around like 2010, maybe like 2011. But it was just like it used to be that if there was a car chase in Los Angeles, they'd just stop programming. Like it'd be the middle of the day and like people would be like, hey, there's a car chase on KTLA. And you could like turn it on and you would watch a real life as it's happening car chase. It's one of the funniest things moving out to LA when you start to learn this culture that they can't get enough of a car chase. And they do, they just break in, they have helicopters flying around, like every channel then, all the local channels have the car chase on. You're like, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. What's going on? Why am I, why are we watching a car chase? Yeah. Because that's what we do want to watch. Right. And then the you get the play-by-play. It's like a Ugh. random sports event out here because you have the play-by-play going from the helicopter guy who's like, oh, he's in Woodland Hills now. He's turning down and he's going to try and get onto the 101. This is going to be rough. It's rush hour traffic, so it's an interesting decision. No, he's decided to turn around. He's going through this, He's going through surface streets, surface streets, and then, oh, he's got very close to... And it's this, like... It's, it's like the Vin Scully... He also gives you the insight of kind of like the cops maneuvering like, oh, OK, well, they're going to back off here because there's there's nobody ahead of them. So they're just going to let him kind of keep going and riding it out. Let's keep everybody safe, that kind of thing. It's like, oh, but if he's getting into like where there's a residential neighborhood there, I think we might looking at a pit maneuver here. Yeah, the calling for the pit maneuver. 
or the spikes or the spikes. Yeah. I, I, one of my favorite things about it is the anchors back at the studio. When a car chase goes on for a while where the, they just will circle around like the entire Metro area, not even just LA city, like, because they get on the freeway, they let them go, you know, and the people move out of the way and the cops like to let them just sort of run out of steam and run out of gas. But yeah, the cops will get up ahead and they'll block the exit so people can't get on the entrance ramps. Yeah. So it clears the freeway as much as they can to try and keep, you know, potentially to keep everybody safe. Well, to bring this all back around, whenever I see a car chase and this is going on, I'm just like, why don't you just go for the border, man? Just in like the chase with Charlie Sheen. Just go for the border, man. That's where you got to go. Go for the border and, and take your chances. Oh, it's too far. You'd have to get... You have to get through San Diego, which is impossible. Or you have to or you have to end up in the middle of the desert. I'm sure when they get into the middle of the desert, they'll just they'll just blow your car up. Right, yeah. They're just like, well, you're done. So yeah, anyway. Sorry. Uh, sorry, that was just one sorry, of my favorite little... things about moving out to LA was I didn't realize that there is such a car chase culture out here and you root for them. And by the way, I love when they would go over the news. Like it would be the five o'clock news and it'd be like, the anchors would be there and it's like, um, our top story today, this car chase that you've been watching for the last hour and a half. <laughs> Instead of it's like, we could have been like bombing a country and it's like, well, the most important thing right now is this car chase. And they will not leave it until that they it finishes and that car comes to a stop and whatever happens from there, 99.9% of the time, the cops will be able to get him out of the car. Sometimes he gets off on foot. Oh, that that's always like the big wrinkle is if he gets off on foot. But yeah. anyway, uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, this we is how much we love car, car chases. chases. Yes. So, so much so that we don't even can't just get enough of them in our fictional narratives that we have to cut into real life and follow real life car chases. So, uh, we're, we're serious about them out here in LA anyway. So, uh, I agree. And, but a part of that, like, what else do you think makes a car chase so iconic? Like, what do you think is the common thread that why everybody else loves car chases? Do you, do you think there is a common thread to them? Like the, why is it always, do we have car chases? Like, why is it always a big thing in an action movie to have a car chase? I, I mean, to me, I think the, the thing about the car chase is it puts your character at the most desperate and most vulnerable because they're they're running like they're on the run from whatever's happening like there is not a stand and fight situation anymore that the flight part of the fight and flight response has happened and you get to watch how desperate a person is to get away and also i think what risks and what morals they're willing to throw aside in order to do that. Like, if you have, you know... Okay, so the one that is one of my favorite, you know, classic is uh, The French Connection, where Popeye Doyle is chasing the elevated train. So you have a crowded city street that he's gunning his car along, and... He needs to get that suspect that's on the train, but he's still a cop and he still has a good heart. So he's like yelling at people to get out of the way, but he's still 
trying to get around him and he like smashes up his car everything is like breaking on it it's i mean i think he uh, at one point he avoids like a woman in a baby carriage and yeah. like crashes through like a dumpster or maybe it's just a pile of trash but you know it's just that iconic like he's willing to endanger himself to keep the public safe while still going after like this thing that he desperately needs and i think that is a, you know it reveals a lot about a character the car chase just heightens the nature of whatever is going on there and that's why typically it's either right at the kind of the middle part of the movie or it's kind of one of the final sequences of a movie because it either sets up for the actual climax of the story or it is the climax of the story and a lot can come out of that and i i think you're right you're and it depends on the movie too. Like there's sure. a lot of variation between what's kind of, uh, you know, what we talk about kind of just super action or more of these down earth, realistic car chases, like the one from the French connection, which is much, much more grounded, but the stakes are the same and they, they, they heighten the stakes. So I, I think that's one of probably the main things that just excites everybody about it because you either are going to just sit there in enjoyment or you're going to sit there in kind of empathy of what that character is going through. Like you said in the Pop-Up Doyle one where he has to chase this guy down, but then it means he's going to possibly endanger the very people that he's trying to keep safe by chasing this guy down. So there's this whole dichotomy of that. So so while I was doing some research for this, because believe it or not, folks, we actually do do research. Um, I came across... It, it may not seem like it, but we do. We try. <laughs> we, we try at try. least. We try our Whether best. Whether we, we, we can actually articulate this research that we do it remains to be seen. But, you know, we try, folks. We try. We try. Um, I came across an article. Um, it was an interview with Edgar Wright. And it was, ask, it was after Baby Driver came out. And asking him what universally makes a good car chase. And this was Edgar Wright's um, kind of list of five things that make a car chase iconic. He starts with uh, the stakes, like, you know, what the person is going after. Um, you know, like, he gives the example of in the French Connection uh, needing to get that suspect that was on the train. Like, it's very clear. It's exactly what you know you need to have happen. In, you know, Baby Driver, it's to, you know, get the robbers away from the police in you know drive it is to get the guys away from the cops um and then it it's the vehicle the vehicle always make it iconic like you can think of the mini cooper uh thing from the italian job which is so iconic that it had to be done in the even the remake or um they bring up death proof or he brought up death proof the driver because of the character and their wants and needs and everything the music and the location were the five things that he said made a car chase iconic. And I can't disagree with him, mainly because he's Edgar Wright and I'm not. Uh, I I think I would. Yeah, those all make sense if you're looking at like the foundation of if you're going to build out a car chase sequence, you need to have all five of those principles right there. I can't I can't disagree with that and I can't honestly think of anything else you have to add that to, to at, at like the foundation level of building out a great car chase uh yeah that totally makes sense so, so going through some of those so 
what is kind of like your favorite setting for a car chase? Would it be the city? Is it is it kind of more like a wide open expanse area or maybe like along a mountainside? Like what are kind of like your settings that you enjoy the most uh, for a car chase? Mine are always, I always love the city car chases. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's something about the chaos that's already happening in a city that's a city is already organized chaos and to throw something so linear as needing to get to a to b is to me is it gives it the biggest charge i do have to say one of my least favorite places for them to do a car chase is in a parking garage i hate every time you get a car chase that en- enters a parking garage. I just, I get why you do it, because it's the tight turns, it's the, and the, not to say that you can't do great car chases in parking garage, but man, and they're so ubiquitous in the city, but, ah, oh, going into, I hate it. Every time they go into a, a parking garage, I kind of groan. Ah, <laughs> oh, here we go. I was like, oh, great. A lot of tire squealing and circles. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, the cutaways in a murder mystery that are the non <laughs> the red herrings that they throw in there. You're like, why are we doing this? Right. I know where this is going. Most likely, they're gonna somebody's gonna go driving off the roof of the parking garage, <laughs> right? Or you're gonna get trapped in the parking garage. And I understand why you do it because like you, your stunt coordinator and your line producer are probably standing right next to you as the director, and they're like, look, either this ends in a city street in like ten seconds, where we've blown all of our budget or you can probably get another minute if we can be inside a closed location like a parking garage and the director's like ah let's take the minute i got some cool stuff i want to do with somebody flipping over the front of the car yeah right so uh what do you like as far as the car goes do you enjoy when it's like some souped up sort of wait a minute what about you where are you where are you having your car chases Ditto for the city. I mean, like the you you already have the energy and the craziness and the tight. I think the the tight street factor is usually a lot of the big part of it because it's so small, and then you're trying to weave and maneuver, and not, you have built in obstacles already in a city. And I think that's part of what makes it fun is you have either whoever you're chasing or you're being chased by is already height enough, like just getting around anywhere, let alone then in a city, which like you said, get from point A to point B without being chased by a car is difficult enough, let alone now having to break all these rules without actually trying to have collateral damage of just innocent people around you. That's always a lot of excitement. Um, So as far as the car goes, do you enjoy more when it's like some kind of like souped up sports car or some iconic car? Or do you think it's more fun when it's like just they jump in some kind of beater and somehow are making it work, even though it's not like the best performing car? I I mean, as much as I love the Fast and Furious movies, um, I think sometimes when you get like these crazy high end sports cars, like when you do like the James Bond chase scene and he's like in the latest Aston Martin and you're just like, okay, like that car has to go like 200 miles an hour. Like how is this actually a chase with like whatever the police are driving or whatever the bad guy's driving? Like you should be able to outrun this guy by a lot. Um, yeah. 
one of my favorites of all time is uh, in Drive, or I guess one of my favorite setups, because as uh, Ryan Gosling is is walking through the garage, and you pass all these like amazing like sports cars that are, and then it comes to I think it's a a red Ford Taurus. And then Brian Cranston souped up the engine. He's like, "Here it is, red Ford Taurus, the most common car in Los Angeles." And I'm like, "I'll, I'll do, I'll do real time follow up. It's actually a Chevy Malibu." Chevy Malibu, was okay, the... yeah. I that to me is like, that's the type of like detail that I love in a car chase. To just be like, that's a thing. Um, and then another one of my favorites is when they're trying to get away after the uh, heist in uh, the town. Um, it's the very famous one where they're dressed like nuns. Uh-huh. And they're going around the streets of Boston and the streets are so tight and they're driving an SUV and they keep popping up on the curbs. I mean, stuff like that I really like. Have they ever done a car chase that's really good that's in the suburbs? Because I would love to have somebody being chased and keep hitting cul-de-sacs. Like, just that idea of, like, gunning it at a million miles an hour and heading down a street only to find it be a cul-de-sac and then having the decision of what are you going to do? Like, how do you get out of there? And how do you make it around someone's yard? Yeah, you keep just pulling wheelies around the cul-de-sac trying to figure out <laughs> Right, how to get out go. of, like, the suburban jungle. I don't know, I... D- that's probably been done. That feels like that has to have been done in a movie. Because I think that would be really funny. I feel like the Naked Gun might have done that or something. Yeah, maybe. How about you? What are you? Are you, are you souped up mobiles? I, you know, it's a really hard one. I, I don't need the souped up cars, but I enjoy when it's like a solid car, like maybe like a BMW that's a stick shift. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, you know a racing car BMW, just the, one of their regular models, like that kind of thing, because you know, it has performance handling to it and say, if it's still a stick as well, then it's got a little bit extra, um, maneuverability to it where the sports cars and stuff like that, it's kind of fun. Like I get it. And that's fun in the context of like, say the fast movies or a mission impossible, but, or a James Bond, but I, I enjoy the more realism to it. And then I find, Sometimes, though, like you said, Drive is a great example of just using a more even everyday model car. I know they said they souped it up a bit with the engine or whatever, but he still has the the generic handling that a Malibu comes with. And he does all this crazy stuff. So it's like elevating the car because of the driver. And that goes leads into what you said about one of the points is the driver himself. Yeah. So the fact that he's able to elevate it. And it's one of the things I love about the born supremacy car chase is that he's in this piece of Russian, like junk box that he had to take. And the guy who's chasing him is in this G wagon, this modern day G wagon. <laughs> and he is doing all kinds of stuff. Oh, it's a taxi. That's what it is. It was a taxi. That's right. He, he stole it from a taxi driver and he is just pounding the crap out of it. He, it's stick shift and he is grinding the gears, reversing and doing all kinds of stuff that you can't do in a piece of crap taxi. He's doing it because he's Jason Bourne and he's super spy. But I just love the, you know, kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, like kind of overachiever of a car that you're, you're, the car is playing up to the skill level of the driver. And I, I usually enjoy that because you're, 
it just shows how great the driver is. And then you're, you're just absolutely demolishing the car. So uh, that, I, I enjoy that. That's a really good point. I, I mean, that is really good. And you're totally right. Like so many good points, like a stick shift is mandatory when you're uh, doing absolutely. like, it doesn't matter if the car doesn't even come with a stick shift. Like it, it needs to be a manual transmission during a car chase. There's, you just need to do it. Even if it has nothing to do with like a performance thing, just that it just so it looks so much cooler. And then you have that extra vibe from the cutting of going from the different gears and everything, which they'll always do a cut of when he's shifting gears or yeah. they are shifting gears. So it, it always adds that extra element and just makes you feel that much more into it. I, I love that. Um, All right. Then I got and, a question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I got a question for you. Uh, realistic car chase cartoony car chase like realistic like talking like uh french connection i just watched um the car chase from the rhythm section which i hadn't seen before with blake, with blake lively which is super realistic i think it takes place in tehran um or cartoonish like the fast movies the mission impossibles the you know that sort of thing you know this one's a hard one I, I... So here is the reason it's hard is because I'm not sure the ones I like fall within that. I don't know if it's kind of a mix of both. So let me ask you where some of these might fall. So what about the gone in 60 seconds car chase? That's a little bit more cartoonish, I right? would call that cartoony because there's, yeah. I mean, the whole premise of that movie is kind of cartoony. Yeah. But. So what about, what about the born supremacy car chase in Russia? Because, go ahead, what do you think? I'd is that cartoony? Or is that realistic? I would, I'd put that a little, I'd put that a little more on the realistic side. See, that, that one is really hard because I guess to me. I put it more, I put it more on the realistic side. I would too. Shading towards the center of going towards cartoony, but it's still on the realistic side. And I think that's part of why I love it so much because it is mostly visual effects. It is real cars in the city just driving around chasing each other where it's not like fast and the furious where they put in them in this exotic locale and setting and situation with these crazy cars and doing all these random things that you can just dream up. And it's like, yes, let's make it happen. Like you said, driving down the streets of Brazil with a safe tied to a cable and you know, you're trying to maneuver that where this is just a car, a guy and a car and a guy with some cops in, involved in the, in between. And you're just trying to get away from each other. So yeah, I would, cause, cause I go ahead. I would call that. Yeah. The more I'm thinking about it, I'd put that on the realistic spectrum. I think, the stuff that starts to get outside of realism is when physics don't matter anymore. Yes. Or if at any point someone is outside the car and holding on, I think that's where you start getting into like the cartooniness of a chase. Uh, you're, you're so right. And it's so funny. So for doing some research with this, I started going back and watching just some actual, the race sequences from things on YouTube. And one of the ones I looked up was the Fast and the Furious, uh, the the plane jump rescue mission. Oh, so good. They actually, by the way, fun fact, they actually did drop those planes out of the air, out of the uh, Boeing. Cars. Yeah, they had skydivers with them to do it, to make it look like that. Now, the guy, obviously the actors were not in the cars, but they did have skydivers that were jumping in with them. They had to do it two cars at a time at 10,000 feet. 
All right. So I want to get into this one. So okay. this is, okay. Uh, we're, we're jumping ahead or jumping around a little bit here. So, hold on. Actually, I want to back up because I, I, I don't want to get into we this. So we'll, we'll start about that. Yeah, we'll start. So one of the ones I think that is interesting uh, and falls more on the realistic side is the Ronin car chase yeah. in Paris. Um, I am not as much of a fan of this as I know a lot of people are. Like, I think it's fine. It's a good car chase, but it's not to me as iconic as a lot as it typically is talked about. The thing that I find interesting about it that it's a little different is that it does feel the one of the more realistic car chases that I've ever seen. Uh, and I think it's in the line of the French Connection one mm -hmm. where yeah. it feels really realistic. One of the main things I noticed about it was there's no music yeah. bed playing during the whole car chase. It's just basically the sounds of the cars riding through the streets. And I think that was then I realized the intent of the filmmakers and what they were trying to go for with that car chase. I remember the first time I watched that car chase, I wasn't impressed by it because the drivers looked nervous and Robert De Niro was one of them. He was the one driving the one car and, uh, 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 Natalie McElhorn, yeah, I think, was yeah. uh, the other driver of the other one. Um, right. But especially Robert De Niro, he looked uneasy driving the car in this car chase. And at first, when I first saw it, I used to think, that doesn't seem cool. Like, I want to cool. Like, why is he looking nervous? Like, and why does this look difficult to him? And like, things like that. But rewatching it now, it's like, I get what they're going for. Like, this was the point of it. Like, this is supposed to be more realistic and true to life. And this is not an easy thing to do. Driving through the streets of Paris, chasing somebody, driving up on cars, making U-turns, you know, trying to get away from the police. Like, that was the intent. Yeah, that is actually one of my favorites. Um, mainly because I had never seen a car chase that didn't have music before. Obviously, it's one of the more iconic things about that car chase. And they do still have some cartoony elements. I mean, at one point, if I remember correctly, a cop car gets kind of like bounced around the tunnel that they're going through. And it yeah. like spins and like Robert De Niro guns it to like kind of make it so that he doesn't hit it as it's spinning. Yeah, it was like tunnel. a turnstile door yeah. almost where you kind of like run in just enough to before it closes. And that's how he got through it. And it's funny rewatching it as the chase goes along, it's real, 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 real. And then all of a sudden you start seeing small things like that, like that car, that cop car flip and spin. And then after that, there's escalation of a little bit, slightly more cartoony things where they'll hit something and other cars start crashing into each other. And then there was then a pile up and then a big truck just flipped over the whole pile and then it blew up. So they, yeah. it started off real. And then all of a sudden there was these cartoonish elements by the end of it. So that was interesting as well. But I always did like that. I, I thought that was a really interesting choice to be like, what would the reality be? Like if you were, because I think the thing that, gets lost in a lot of these car chases is that for all that damage that you're causing you're drawing a lot of attention to yourself and a lot yeah. of attention to what crime you've committed or what crime you're yeah. going to commit or what like if you're playing the reality of the situation you have to be thinking i'm gonna get caught like now there's no other choice than me to like see this all the way through because I'm going to get caught. They're, they can't just let this go. Like a truck full of gasoline blew up. Like I think some people are dead. Like there's <laughs> there's always a trail of carnage from all of these car chases. And I, I think there's that's part of it, though, is there's always a suspension of disbelief for a car chase. So much more, I think, leeway here than a lot of other 
set pieces, action sequences, or even just story sequences that happen. I, for whatever reason, I, and I'm guilty, not even just guilty, just like I'm all there. Like I will definitely suspend my disbelief more for a car chase, oh, yeah. but it's always in the back of your mind. You're like, wait a minute, you're doing all this, but not only are you drawing attention, like in the moment of like, you're doing all this destruction and you're doing a bunch of illegal things, let alone driving on the wrong side of the road. You're doing, you're getting away for a reason because you did some other bigger illegal thing. And now all of a sudden you're getting that's being kind of shown to the light of day here because you're being so public about this whole car chase. Right. You're now destroying an entire city to like get away with like a million dollars. And it's like, oh, oh man, this is, I mean, in real life, getting into a car chase is probably the least productive thing you could do in those situations. Um, which I think you, why you have to make the stakes so clear and so high. I, and I was just going to literally say that is the, the stakes though are always an important part of that because it's like, why are you trying to get away? Is it just because you don't want to get caught because you, you, you know, you stole something minor or is it that somebody's life's in danger or your life is in danger if you don't get away? So I think it's always important with those stakes so that it, at least it gives you some semblance of context of like, why am I rooting for this car chase with all of this other collateral damage happening to all these innocent people? Yeah. Like, is there a reason why I can kind of say it's okay? <laughs> like there has, it's to, worth it. has to be a little bit of that there. So, um, or it has to be a thing like that. That's part of the, the born thing. And I like so much is that he does everything possible to not injure or put anybody else in harm's way. So, not that, that there isn't some time, uh, element of danger there. There always is. But, you know, if they're minimizing it as much as possible, then I, I think that helps as well. So it depends. Um, yeah. Anyway, so let's just kind of wrap this all up a little bit here and, and kind of just list out what are your top three or four favorite car chases? Um, um, and maybe if we want to go one for one or, you know, you can list them out. I don't know, whatever way you want to go. I mean, however you want to do it. I'm I'm happy to go. I, how about this? I, we've talked about all of mine except for two, because I had I had the born as one of mine, Ronin as one of mine, French Connection as one of mine. But there's two that we didn't talk about that I would I would okay. I would put as my one of my favorites. I will talk quickly about this because I've talked about it at length before. Baby Driver I still think is one of the best movies um, that has been made. I think the car chases in that are exquisite. The way the music is used uh, throughout all of the car chases. The whole thing is like a dance and a car chase in one. So there's, I would watch Baby Driver a hundred times over. My dark horse in this race is um, there's a movie a while back, and it was starring Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz, and it was called oh. Night and Day. And it has some of the most cartoony car chases because the premise of the movie is that essentially Tom Cruise was supposed to die in this. It was a super spy. He was supposed to have died in this plane crash. And Cameron Diaz was not supposed to be on the plane. The plane was supposed to be empty. But he and her were on there. He saves her life. And then he realizes that by saving her life, all the people who are trying to kill him are now trying to kill her as well. So he is like trying to talk her into believing that he's a super spy, 
And at one point she gets taken by the police in the middle of New York. And they're like driving out of town and they're going over one of the bridges. And he's like shooting, he's doing everything. And he ends up on top of the car and then like looks like he falls off like the bridge. Right. And then the next like exit ramp, he's back on top of another car. Like it's just it's so cartoony. It's so fun. Tom Cruise is the best at chases because he really does pull it off with a great amount of earnestness. And Cameron Diaz, I think, is a lot of times underrated as a comedic actress, and she she sells it so much. Well, I, I and I was I, I think you're 100 right, and you're I knew you're going somewhere with that, but because she has such she's so great at reaction and working off of the other actors in those type of. Uh, fun scenes and easy scenes like that, those comedic scenes. And that's the fun thing. I, I know that movie. I actually love that movie. It's a great one. It's one of those ones you see, nobody remembers, but it, it I remember loving that movie and the car chases are fantastic. And the cavalierness that he has as a super spy, like everything just comes so easy to him. He's kind of like the Tom Brady of super spies in that movie where yeah, that's it's just a great like, example. Yeah. He just does everything with a smile and an ease. Like he's talking to her, having a full conversation, yet he's like probably shooting like five people behind his back that he's not even looking at kind of thing. Like that's the kind of super spy that he is and his attitude in the movie. And it's great. And they work off each other. And I remember, isn't there one, two through like, I can't remember what city is, but it's the one when they're on the motorcycle and she's like swinging around him and he's telling her to do this and he's driving it. But then she's telling her to shoot people. It's like, and I think that was even on the movie poster, I think maybe. Um, but yeah. it's, oh. oh man, I love that. That's a great choice. Great choice. in that bringing oh, that I one up. That I haven't thought so about much. that one. In I'm going to have to watch that again. I, ah, so am I, it's, it? it was such a surprise and, but it was like kind of not a, a, a big hit, but man, it's no, it wasn't. It was it, so much fun. It's one of those, it's a fun action movie. That's it's so great. Yeah. I don't know that didn't do so well I, I don't know I love yeah that. especially with two big stars like that but uh good choice man very good choice I love that right. um, so what do you got what are your favorites so we have gone over born supremacy and I, I'll just say it's it's the craziness that it is and it's all the jump cuts and the tightness and efficiency that in which they produce this thing and I just remember the reason why is I remember seeing this movie in the theater and I remember watching it and just a gigantic smile raising on my face as the this whole car chase is happening. Like I was smiling ear to ear, like laughing from joy and excitement from experiencing this car chase. And I remember walking out of the theater, walking through the tunnel into the parking lot, uh, out the doors into like the open air and just going just smiling. Like I couldn't stop smiling after watching this car chase going. That was one of the most amazing movie experiences I've ever had. And I've never seen anything like it. And I know action is just kind of more generalized now, but I feel like I said before, this was kind of the beginning of what current modern action sequences are kind of built around. And to see that for the first time when it came out, it just was something I'll remember for the rest of my life. And to me, this is like my French connection. My bullet 
is, is yeah. the born supremacy car chase and i i, I it nothing will will top it uh even the, anything else that they did in the born series uh, they did the New York one, which was good. It was a little short, and it just didn't quite have the punch. And then they had the one in Greece in the Jason Bourne movie in the beginning, which was really top notch. But uh, it this one still for me is is just the home run. So the other two that I love, uh, one of my other favorites is the Matrix uh, sequel, the Highway Car Chase. Oh yeah, was that the Matrix Reloaded? Is that one? Yes, the second the one. Yeah. Yeah, that car chase is really, really good. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I yeah, remember yeah. that being pretty iconic at the time. Uh, and you know, obviously, if you know a little bit of the backstory, like they built like a quarter mile of a highway to film it and all that kind of stuff. Um, it just, I actually really liked the second movie a lot and the action sequences they had in there. And again, it, it benefited from the not having to explain everything and just everything was like full gear. Uh, and that was coming off of the sequence before where I think it was the stair fight sequence where Neo was fighting those two twins at the, in the stairs, which was crazy. And then it oh yeah, somehow it. flash forward to them with the key master guy, uh, coming down onto the top of the tractor trailer. And then from there, all kinds of chaos just ensues where they're getting chased by all the agents. And so then they find their way onto a flatbed that has all these motorcycles and then she gets downloaded to use a motorcycle and then it's like weaving it out. The agents are coming in all the different cars and, oh, that's what it is. Then it's on a tractor trailer. The agent comes into a tractor trailer, kind of pins them down. Morpheus uh, then kind of comes out of nowhere and stops the two brother twin things. And he's doing all kinds of jumping around. He has a sword and he cuts through the Cadillac they're driving in a Cadillac at some point, like all kinds of craziness is happening. It's great. And anytime there's a bike sequence in it too, I mean, they're on a Ducati. Yeah. I mean, and, the, and the pumping music, I think it's was a, the chemical brothers did the soundtrack, I think sure. for the matrix. I, I, I uh, believe it. It's just this pumping techno music's going on and it's, it, it's just, it's so great. It's the car chase in addition to all the weird logic physics that they have in the matrix that they can play with, which just all adding up is just so much fun. Yeah. That was one of my favorite ones because, uh, I forget who it is. Maybe it's, uh, maybe tank is still with them, but he's basically like, don't, uh, it's like, don't, you can't go on the freeway and it's because the agents can just take over any driver in any car at any time and yep. they have no regard for their life. So like cars are just like smashing into each other. It was very intense. I remember liking that car chase a lot. Um, I remember getting a little giddy in the movie theater because I was like, wow, that was that was quite impressive. Yeah, that, that was the time of like trilogies really coming into their own. And like, yeah, that was one of the iconic ones I think from like the aughts was that car chase. And that was just uh, how big of a movie matrix was. And they used that full production budget to, for all it's worth oh gosh, uh, in yeah. that sequence. It was great. I mean, that, that's, that to me is again, why you love it. It's just the cinematic nature of that, that, that can't get done anywhere else except in a movie. So I'll, uh, I'll top off my number three here with one that we can both uh, enjoy here. It's the fast and furious number seven, the plane jump rescue, oh, which so this to me is my favorite fast and furious movie. Fast furious seven to me is, is my favorite. It has the, the, some of the best action, mm-hmm. some of the best story mm-hmm. and some of the best motivation. And this one is just 
everything about it when I was watching it, I even watched this in theater because we had this discussion. How I kind of caught up later on to this whole uh, franchise. It it just was so crazy. One thing after another, this sequence has to last at least 15 to 20 minutes and they continually top it themselves within it where it goes from dropping out of a Boeing uh, uh, cargo plane with all their cars, parachuting down with the cars. Then they have their on their skid plates. And then as they get close to the ground, they hit a button and they kind of jump the cars off the skid plates and then start driving as they're in midair and hit the ground running. Yeah. And then, and then they're, then they have to catch up to this whole uh, brigade of cars driving around the mountains of Azerbaijan or something like that. And yep. it's like around cliffs, of course, which is fantastic. Got to have a great setting and they have to go rescue some, some, uh, hacker or something. Yeah. Like I was going to say and it was the hacker that this... was on the transport. Um, Remy. It's the, yeah. It... The girl from, uh, what should we call it? Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. And when I rewatched this uh, for the for this show, I was like, oh, my God, look who it is. Anyway, uh, and she's in like some big armored bus thing where they have like their they have their comm center. But then they also have this like load of like uh, armed gear of like guns and all this kind of stuff. And then they have, a like I said, a whole squad of like SUV armored SUVs that are kind of like protecting it and trailing it and all this kind of stuff. And everything else that ensues, like the, they line up in formation and then they start just ramming the bus and knock everything else out. Ludacris is driving a bulletproof van of some sort. And yeah. then they have, they have gun gappling guns that come out the side of this bus though, that are like, like armor piercing bullets. And it, it it's just, it's amazing. One of the things I realized rewatching this sequence is one of the, the, um, the calling cars of the Fast and Furious series is how they love to look at each other while they're driving yes. and give nods of communication. And they all know what they're supposed to be doing when they look at each other. Yeah. Yet they're speeding down like in the excess of 150 miles an hour down a windy cliff road. Yet they have the time to just stare at each other for a good 20 seconds yeah. and communicate that way. I, I, I But it's it's be- it's the best. It's the best. It is. It's, they it's, They do car chases. I mean, I think when you name your series Fast and Furious, you have to do a good car chase. And they they keep elevating to, like, the next ridiculous level of doing a car chase. And I'm happy every time they do it. That is that is well, the, such a great car chase. Is that the one where Tyrese is... He never quite gets into the chase. Like, he keeps going yes. down the mountain. <laughs> Which I think is because well, he's uh, he's petrified. He doesn't want to actually drop out of the plane, even though it's his plan. And then when they tell him he's going to drop out of a plane, he doesn't want to do it. Then Ludacris shoots his shootout, and then he makes him go out anyway. But then he gets, I think, falls off somewhere else, and it's not till later on that he rejoins the whole uh, escapade that's going on. Yeah. But the p- topper of it all that made it like just insane to me was the part where the Paul Walker's on the bus. Uh, he's fighting that dude. They ki- the, the bus driver gets killed, so then the bus, and they're by the cliffside, and then the thing spins on its side. These two are fighting each other. Paul Walker kicks the guy out, and then he close- that guy closes him in. So Paul Walker then bus slides out to the edge of the cliff, of course. He's dangling over. He climbs over the bus. And just as he's starting to, he starts, has to run as the bus is slowly sliding off the cliff. So you got like physics running against him while he's trying to run as it's slowly running off. And then he jumps out and then, um, uh, um, Michelle Rodriguez, his character, um, 
uh, Letty. Letty, she comes and sees it. She does like some sort of spinny wheelie and her, her back of her car just grazes the edge of the cliff and her spoiler just sticks out enough that he can grab on with one hand and then she whips around and throws him onto the ground. And then he's just laying there like full, full bore and then she like st- sticks her head out the window. You good? He's like, yeah, I'm good. And he just gets in the car and they drive off. Like, no big deal. Like, he wasn't almost died. He didn't just run off a bus that's falling off a cliff. Like we're all good. It's, it was the cherry Dude. on the top of that whole sequence. And it, and then on the side tangent, uh, Dom and Jason Statham, uh, Shaw, they go off in their own little, uh, rendezvous race, uh, around the forest of Azerbaijan. Right. Oh, right. Cause that's uh, when Shaw's the bad yes, guy. Yes, This is where he, he gets the girl that they're trying to rescue. Oh, that was the other favorite thing that I laughed out loud at. So, you were talking about earlier about, you know, it's crazy when there's a person dangling from a car. So this person they're rescuing Remy jumps on the car to Dom's car, has one hand riding all over the roof while he's getting bashed into the wall by, by Shaw. And you're just like, wait a minute, but she's like a civilian too. She's not even like one of the superheroes. Anyway, long story short, at some point he jumps the, like the hydraulics so that the car bounces and bounces her and she flips up into the sunroof into the car, like all in one motion. It's, it's a work of art. It's a work of art. And it's just, Everything that I then was like, no, everything about this series is amazing. So then the um, the uh, the encore to all that later on in the movie is when they, they're in the Azerbaijan and they drive the cars from building to building. <laughs> Do you remember that sequence? Yeah. Yeah. That was. Um, yeah. Because it was those towers in was it Dubai. No, this is in Azerbaijan, I think, still. I think it's in. Uh, oh, Okay. And yeah, so they have to steal some hard drive out of a car, some $3 million car that's up in like the the 60th story of these tall towers. And there's three twin towers that are of this complex. And in order oh, right, to get out right, of it, right, 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 Shaw right, comes right. in with some big gigantic gun and starts shooting up this party that's going on. And so then they're in the car and the only way out is to drive from their building to the next one. And he and he drives right out the window into the next one. And with the famous line, uh, Dom cars don't fly from Paul Walker. And then they get into the second building, which is just an empty floor, just like, no it's a construction thing right but then of course the the brake is broken the brake line so they can't stop so what does he do he steps on the pedal and they go faster to jump into the third building (laughs) which then is good it all makes sense then then is some sort of like uh art collection uh thing going on it's an art gallery and then you see them probably knocking over which i'm assuming is like irreplaceable uh statues from some sort of civilization and yeah and then they they both duck out of the car as it then zooms out and goes out the window for a fourth time into the wilderness of whatever's below it's i know like somebody's just gonna be sitting down below and their car's gonna hit them like that's how that would go in real life that's what i think about i'm like what about all the people that they don't know that how many people are right below them where that car is falling out but you know what that's the suspension of disbelief that i will give fast and furious any day of the week so yeah yeah. fast fast seven though those two sequences but specifically the plane jump rescue is just it's it's a work of art it's a work of art and Uh, yeah I will give one honorable mention here real quick. Uh, have you seen Tenant yet? Yes, I have seen Tenant. That was... 
it's it's a doozy of a movie. Christopher, it's, it's a mind fuck of a movie, and we don't have to get into that. But uh, I was pretty impressed with that reverse car chase that they had. Yeah. So real quick, just to as an overview, Tenant is basically about a secret mission to recover artifacts that have reverse entropy. So for everything that goes forward, there's stuff that can also go backwards. And this car chase happens as the reverse of a car chase that happens earlier in the movie. And you see how the two line up in the middle. And it is crazy. That one... That was really mind bendy as to how they they even like. Uh, yeah, it's it's a bonkers sequence because I I watched the movie and I I really liked it, but there's obviously a lot to break down from that movie. So you really much just go along for the ride kind of movie when you're first viewing of it. Um, it's definitely a watch ten times to really see if you can start to understand what the hell is going on, uh, if it's even possible. Yeah. But yeah. you're right though. I'm rewatching the sequence today and. I'm watching like, oh, yeah, I remember this. That's right. This is happening. And then it's like, oh, wait, is this where they're trying to like match up where they were kind of flash forward? They went ahead and now it's in the reverse. So they're kind of catching up to and you are. But like you just said, it sort of breaks your brain of like what they're what is actually happening in the sequence because they characters don't even realize it until it's happening. And then you're seeing it happening kind of ahead of it. And you're like, wait, I think this is. Yeah, and but also the tension within the scene, what else is going on, is is all really interesting, and and it's just obviously really well done because it's Nolan, so it looks great as well, and it's it's just a it's a newer one that I haven't really you know gotten around, but I was just remember watching it going, this is nuts. <laughs> that has to be one of the densest action movies I had seen in a long time. Like Nolan does do a really good job of giving you the facts you need to understand this weird world. Uh And that's all you need to know. Like with Inception, he did a really great job of just being able to be like, okay, as you go deeper into each level of the dream, time goes slower. It will be slower for, for like your experience time at a slower place than, and that's all you need to know. And physics doesn't, don't matter when you're in a dream. Okay. But the kick will wake you up. And like, that was it. That's all you needed to know from that point on. And then you're able to have these crazy, you know, action sequences. And he does do a pretty good job in Tenant of being like, look, things that go forward can also go, are also happening in reverse time. So know that that is also a thing that's happening. And then you're able to just kind of like take the whole movie in and then, you have to like weed through from there. Like there's so many characters that I need to watch that movie again to like pull apart their motivations throughout the whole thing and be like, wait, why would you do this then? And I'm sure there's actually a legit reason because it is so dense. And I'd be like, Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And 
You're absolutely right. And that's why it's one of those just go for along for the ride once you get the basic gist of it. But it's it's quite a ride once you just let go. It's quite a ride. So uh, it's another one. Oh, it is. To, it's a newer one. So listen, there was a whole bunch. We probably could have gone down a whole list of other ones, you know, we thought about and, you know, we each would have had it. So if you want to send me them, I can just list other good ones. Uh, but I think for, for today, uh, I think that that about wraps it up and we'll leave it at that. Heck yeah. Um, did you have a spotlight for the day? Uh, yeah, you know what? My Here's my spotlight for the day. Uh, we were just in Cartagena, um, Colombia, and that is a magical place. We were in Old Town Cartagena, and we spent a week there, and um, we had uh, gone for a wedding, and it was just amazing. Um, the people there are super, super friendly, and warm and welcoming and i had a blast so there it is i my spotlight of the week is Cartagena, colombia uh that's awesome uh that's not a normal place i think many people get to visit so uh lucky for you no yeah it's actually on the on the 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 department of justice do not visit list but colombia is not Cartagena as a city Cartagena as a city is not there was plenty of Americans and Europeans that we saw down there. Like there's a lot of different languages that you could hear being spoken. And there were people who were obviously tourists. That's awesome. Well, uh, that's awesome that you got to visit there though. My spotlight of the day will be, I have this website that uh, is a curation website for clothes. Uh, It's called huckberry.com. So if you're looking for really nice clothes that are have a good style to them and are pretty fashionable and uh anything new that you're just trying to update your wardrobe i use this huckberry site it's just uh really nice some of the stuff can be a little expensive but they also have some good finds in there that you know you don't have to go searching all over the internet they kind of do all this kind of research for you and kind of look what's in good trends right now and i i like it a lot so I just like kind of staying on just something that's different outside of what we kind of talk about. So just another thing you can find some nice things if you're ever looking for something nice for yourself. Huckberry? Like B-E-R-R-Y? Yeah, H-U-C-K-B-E-R-R-Y. Oh, there you go. Oh, this is a cool. Yeah. So that is uh, my spotlight of the week. Just kind of trying to keep it fresh, kind of sh- keep it new. So, uh, Tony, if there's nothing else, though, uh, I will talk to you next time talk to you next time man all right later man bye everybody